0: I'd like to ask everyone to please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're reading today out of Psalm chapter 3, Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried out, excuse me, I cried out aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today. Please be seated.
1: Last time I preached, we looked at Psalm 2, which along with Psalm 1 form an introductory pair to the whole book of Psalms, and we asked ourselves, which team were we on, that of the Lord and his anointed and those on their team, the winning team, or that of the nations and the kings and those allied with them, ultimately the losing team? Today we continue our journey through the book of Psalms by looking at Psalm 3, which brings with it a number of firsts to the book of Psalms. It's the first psalm containing a heading. It's the first instance of a genre. That is, we see that it is here called a psalm. The first psalm attributed to to King David. The first psalm with a description of an historical event to which the psalm corresponds. It's the first prayer that we find in the book of Psalms. It's also the first psalm to use the term Selah. And finally, it's the first lament psalm, as we will see David lamenting the enemies arrayed against him. Additionally, as we saw last time when considering Psalm 2, there were points of contact back to Psalm 1. Today we'll see there are several points of contact between this psalm and Psalms 1 and 2 as well. So as we begin, have you ever had an Eeyore Day You remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Some of his famous sayings include, it's all for naught, or no need to bother on my account, or I'd say thistles, but nobody listens to me anyway, or the nicest thing about the rain is that it always stops, eventually, or could be worse, not sure how, but it could be, I may be weird, but when I read Psalm 3, that's what came to my mind, that King David was having an Eeyore day. Nothing seemed to be going his way. Everyone seemed to be against him. Nothing seems to be going right, or even as the Lord had promised him. Granted, David's situation was in one respect much graver than Eeyore's, and that David has real foes or enemies who are actively trying to harm him. I would ask you, today. Who are your personal foes today? We may not have enemies actively trying to do us bodily harm, but we may have someone at work who's trying to discredit us or someone who is trying to take credit for our work. We may have a family member who is abusive towards us. We may have a disease that's afflicting us. We have a culture attempting to cancel us. And we are all facing continuing opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So as we consider Psalm 3 this morning and look at David's response to his foes, I want us to consider how we are facing our foes. Do we face our foes in fear, or do we face our foes with faith? So to help us set the stage and supply the context to the events in David's life that were the occasion of this psalm, here's a brief summary of what has transpired to bring us here. We see this chain of events starts with David's sin with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of her husband Uriah in 2 Samuel 11. The prophet Nathan is sent by God to David in 2 Samuel 12 to inform him that due to his sins, he, that is God, is going to raise up evil against David out of his own house. In 2 Samuel 15, we see that David's son Absalom conspires against David and steals the hearts of the people of Israel, then he has himself proclaimed king, and as a result, David is forced to flee Jerusalem. So with this background, let's begin looking at the text in verses 1 and 2. We see fear as foes arise and declare there is no salvation in God. In verse 1, we read, O Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. We see here the cries of a man fleeing in fear for his life. This fear arises from a twofold source. First, there is the fear caused by the many, many, many foes who are rising against him. We see this threefold use of the word many in verses 1 and the first half of verse 2. And remember that when the divinely inspired authors use the same word multiple times in close proximity, the intent is to emphasize the thought. So here we have an example, as we learned in our Interpreting the Bible Sunday School class, of Hebrew parallelism, synonymous parallelism. We see that this situation is borne out in David's life in 2 Samuel 15, where we read in verses 12 and 13, While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from gilo His hometown, and so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. These many, many, many are not sympathetic friends, but foes, as in enemies, adversaries, those offering David opposition, and the ringleader being no less than his son Absalom. We see additionally in this verse that the many, many, many foes are rising up against the king. This is our first link back to Psalm 2, where you remember we read in Psalm 2:2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. This is what's happening here. Many are rising up against King David, Yahweh's anointed. And we will see that the conspiracy in this psalm, even though seemingly growing, Strengthening and unstoppable, is as ill fated as the vain plotting of the nations that we saw in Psalm 2. Moving on to verse 2, we see the second source of the Psalmist's fear, where we read, Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God, Selah. Our ESV translation, as well as the NASV and King James, use the word soul here. That might cause us to think that the Psalmist is referring to only to the separate, eternal spirit of his being that survives apart from the body after death. But the NET and NIV translations use the word me rather than soul, and that fits better with the meaning of the Hebrew word translated here as soul. The word is nephesh, which carries the sense of the essential being of human beings, our life, our self, our heart, our personhood, It is the same word that we find translated as living creature in Genesis 2, chapter 7, at the creation of man, where we read, then Yahweh God formed man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. As one commentator stated it, it is the most deeply held beliefs, needs, desires, and hopes that characterize a being physically, Emotionally or spiritually. So with these words, these foes are striking at the very core of psalmist David's being, seeking to demoralize him and to defeat him. After all, what could be worse than his God forsaking him in his time of need? You can almost hear his foes mockingly spewing this out at him. There is no salvation for you and God. You adulterer, you murderer, You whom your God has said he would raise up evil from your house against you, ha, he's cast you off. There's no hope for you. Not only do we see much about the psalmist in these two verses, we can also discern quite a bit about the accusers. We say that Absalom and those with him have no concern that their actions are against the one anointed by Yahweh. As we see in Psalm 2.2 where we read 2.6, As of me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And even more serious than that, their actions are against Yahweh himself. It is an attack on his power and integrity, as they are presuming that he doesn't have the power to deliver his anointed king and that he does not intend to keep his promise to his king. They are deceived into believing that their attempt to overthrow the king will be as successful will be successful, as we saw the deception of the nations in Psalm 2 as well. We're not likely to literally experience the type of foes that David did, but many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in persecuted lands are living this as we speak and do so every day of their lives. Some are in fear for their very lives. We need to remember to earnestly pray for them that they not be overcome by fear, that they at what they are facing, and that the Lord will sustain them before their foes. should also cause us to think of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he experienced this for us in that all Israel's leaders, most of the people of Israel, all the forces of evil were arrayed against him while here on this earth. We read of this in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 28, when Peter and John were released by the council that arrested them, Please turn your Bibles with me, if you would, Acts 4, 23. We'll look at verses 23 through 28. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Do we have any hint in the scripture here of our Lord being fearful? No. (laughs) What about us? When we are faced with seeming overwhelming opposition or the attacks of others or accusations from the evil one to the effect of God is not for you, he's not coming to deliver you. Look at how many times you've committed the same sin this week or even today. Remember how you denied him before your co-workers. See how you lost it with your spouse or your children. You will receive nothing from him but judgment. Do we, are we tempted to respond in fear, or are we like Christ? May we strive to be more like Christ in these situations, and as we will see as we continue in the psalm, more like David. Moving on to verses 3 and 4, we see faith in God proclaimed. In verse 3, we read, But, O Yahweh, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. In contrast to the focus and the fearful tone of the first two verses, we see here a marked change in David in this emphatic statement, But you, O Lord, he removes his focus from being on the multitude of his foes and focuses firmly where it should be on his faithful God. We see he uses the covenantal name of Yahweh. By doing so, his tone of fear is dispelled and replaced with a tone of faith in God. He can do this by recalling the promises made to him by Yahweh in 2 Samuel 7, where we read 2 Samuel 7, beginning in 11b, Yahweh declares to you, that is to David, that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up, for you, raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And he knows that these promises to him are derived from the promises that Yahweh gave to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, where we read in the first three verses, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As such, David fully expects that his faithful God will be for him what he promised that he would be for Abram that is, a shield, as we read in this verse. In Genesis 15, one, we read, After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. The word for shield used in 15, Genesis 15, one, is the same word used in this, in this psalm that we're looking at. It describes a small, round shield that you held to protect your arm and vital organs of the torso, from arrows or spears or swords during combat. And being a small shield, obviously, it's not able to protect the whole body, but David is so sure of the protection of his covenant God that he says his God is the shield that protects his whole body, all about him. Not only is God his shield, but his God is his glory, or his kavod. No matter how his foes may try to strip him of all his dignity, and convince him that he has been cast off by God. He cannot be stripped of his God or his int- intrinsic God given glory. And we read it, this God given glory in Psalm 8, where in verses 3 through 5 we read When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor in these two phrases david humbly asserts that he even though in the past a successful warrior is not able to protect himself but is in need of divine protection from his foes he also confesses that any glory that he has had in the past as yahweh's anointed king over israel or may have in the future is not due to anything he has done or is, but what has been wholly given to him by the God of glory. In the last phrase of this verse, David calls Yahweh the lifter of his head. This is in great contrast to what we read in 2 Samuel 15, 30, when David fled Jerusalem. We read there, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, And they went up, weeping as they went. David is expressing faith that no matter the number and intent of his foes, God will not only be his shield, he will restore his glory and dignity, and he will allow him to triumph over his foes once again and lift his head high. He's moving from despair to hope. And again, this is not being spoken pridefully, but humbly from a position of confidence in his God. How is it in our lives? All too often, I think we are prone to focus on the foes, the obstacles, the indignities, and the problems that we are facing in our lives and how we seem to be helpless against them. To do so is self-defeating and breeds only what? Fear? We must do as the psalmist David and in faith redirect our focus (coughs) to the only one who can help us in our time of distress, distress and need. I like the way one of the commentators put it when he said, if one gazes too long on the enemy and his might, the enemy grows in the mind's eye to gigantic proportions and his citadels reach to the skies. The hypnotic power of the enemy is broken when one turns one's gaze toward God who is able to fight and grant victory. This made me think of the, the balloons in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. You know, those gigantic gas-filled balloons that make their way down the parade route. I'm sure to those who are there present, especially to the children, seeing them tower over them, they can look kind of intimidating, even if there is no malicious intent. But I'm thinking these can be like our foes if we focus on them. But if we turn our gaze away and someone punctures them, and the gas all leaks out, and we turn back, there's nothing but an unassuming mass of mylar and plastic. This is how it is with us. If we would only remove our focus from the foes, turn it to our great, all-powerful, promise-keeping, faithful God, our fears would evaporate. Moving on to verse 4, we read, I cried aloud to Yahweh, and He answers me from His holy hill, Selah. Because David has declared his faith that Yahweh is his shield and in the glory, his glory, and the one who lifts up his head, it's only naturally, natural that he would cry out to this great God in prayer in his time of need. The ESV translation, "I cried out," captures the sense of the Hebrew that David's cry for help was an audible shout, as one might expect in the heat of battle or when being attacked. We see that his cry is to Yahweh, his covenant God. What else do we see in this verse? He answered from his holy hill. We see that David's God is a prayer answering God. David can recall, for example, how his God saved him from Saul's thousands, as we read in Psalm eighty six, verses fourteen through seventeen. O God, insolent men have risen against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. He reminds himself of the faithfulness of his God in the past. And when we read in this verse his holy hill, it should take us back to Psalm 2 as well. God's holy hill is Mount Zion. It's the place where Yahweh had installed David as his earthly king. It was also the location of uh, his ark, the symbol of his throne on earth and his covenant with his people Israel. It's the place where promises were made to David, In Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, we read, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So David is assured that his God has heard him when he is called and will come to his aid because he remembers how he has answered his prayers in the past. He remembers his coronation, and the promises that were given to him on God's holy hill. How about those of us who are in Christ? When we are faced with human foes who seek to overcome or harm us, or the accusations of the Father of Lies, the great accuser, that we are not in Christ, is it our impulse to cry out in faith to our great God who hears and answers the prayers of his people, and to stand on the promises of who we are in Christ? Promises such as in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or Romans 8, one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? May the Holy Spirit enable this to be the response in our lives. May we turn to our great God who answers prayer. The psalmist David not only proclaimed his faith and confidence in his God with his mouth, as we've seen in the preceding verses, but he displays his faith by taking action. We see that in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, we read, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for Yahweh sustained me. Surrounded by enemies who want to destroy him, hearing demoralizing accusations that his God has abandoned him, David has a perfect recipe for a good, sound, peaceful night's sleep, right? (laughs) Hardly. It would seem to be the perfect storm for a long night of insomnia. How then can David lay down and sleep? Based on the faith in his God professed in the previous two verses and remembering how his God has helped him in the past, he is confident that Yahweh will be his shield, hear his prayer for deliverance on this night. And unbeknownst to David, God, in fact, has answered his prayer. If you were to turn your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel 15, we'll look at verse 31 first. 2 Samuel 15, 31. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh, Yahweh, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. You will remember that Ahithophel's advice to Absalom was that he, Ahithophel, take 12,000 men and pursue David that very night, knowing that he would be exhausted and discouraged and an easy prey. If Absalom had taken that advice... David would most certainly not have survived the night. But in answer to David's prayer, the Lord caused Absalom to ask David's friend, Hushai, for counsel. David had sent Hushai back to Jerusalem, as we see a few verses later in 2 Samuel 15, 34, where we read David speaking to Hushai, But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. We see that Hushai's counsel to in 2 Samuel 11, 17, 11 was to gather all Israel together and have Absalom go out at the head of this mighty force after David. Obviously, it would take some time to gather that force together, and thus... David's life was spared by Yahweh's intervention that night. As we see in 2 Samuel 7:14, 1714, we read, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for Yahweh had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Hithophel, so that Yahweh might bring harm upon Absalom. And so David was able to sleep safely that night, and awaken the following morning, as our verse tells us, because his God had sustained him, sustained his life. Isn't it a great comfort to know that our God is a God who hears and answers the prayers of his people? Seeing it here throughout the Bible and the past experiences in our own lives, it should cause us to be those who go to our great God in prayer first when we encounter foes, obstacles, or attacks. May the Lord enable us to Remember to do that. Moving on to verse 6, we read, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Here we see David after surviving the night and awakened with and faith and renewed confidence. The rest, the answered prayer and the sustaining grace of his God, have removed the fear and replaced it with confident faith. Even though the many, many, many of the first two verses of the psalm are the many thousands in this verse— and they're still seeking to harm him and have set themselves against him all around, he remembers his confident assertion from verse 3 that his God is a shield surrounding him all around and that no foe ultimately can harm him, penetrate to harm him. His circumstances in many ways are no different than they were in the first two verses, but his earlier fear has been replaced by faith in his God. Don't we experience something similar to David in our daily lives? Our God is such a gracious God. He hears our prayers and answers when we cry out to Him. And having seen Him answer our prayers in the past, it strengthens our faith and gives us renewed confidence to continue to follow, to seek, and to serve our great God. Even though the circumstances that caused us to cry out initially most likely have not materially changed at all. We need to ask the Lord to help us not to get so caught up in the distress of the moment which leads to fear that we forget the past instances of his faithfulness that he has shown to us, and so act in faith rather than fear. This brings us to the final two verses in today's Psalm, verses 7 and 8, where we see the psalmist David call on his faithful God to arise, bring victory, and grant salvation. In verse 7 we read, Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, You break the teeth of the wicked. David knows he survived the night, but he does not have the insight that we've just seen in the second Samuel passages that Ahithophel's counsel had been thwarted. As far as he knows, his foes are still remain and they're seeking to do him harm, and remembering back in Psalm two eight, Yahweh had said that he was to ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So he asked his God. As we see, have seen in verse one of our psalm today, many, many, many foes are rising up against David. Here is his desperate cry of faith for deliverance. He calls to his covenant Yahweh to arise or to rise up, as rendered in the NET and the LEB translations, as his sovereign God against his enemies. And the Israelites hearing or reading this psalm would immediately recognize this plea as the words that Moses used for protection when leading the people of Israel in response to the movement of the pillar of fire or the cloud. We see this in Numbers 10, 35, and 36. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return O yahweh to the ten thousand thousands of israel as in the time of moses in the hebrew concept of warfare victory was only possible if their god fought in and through his people and so it is with the same thinking in david's mind he says arise O yahweh save me O my god he pleads for his god to arise and act on his behalf it should likewise be the same in our thinking It's futile for us to attempt to fight battles in our own human strength alone, be they physical or spiritual battles. How does David call on Yahweh to save him? By striking my enemies on the cheek and breaking the teeth of the wicked. What? (laughs) If I was David and had the ability to ask God to do something for my enemies, I would ask him to strike them down with thunderbolts or send out fire to consume them Or cast them alive into the pit? Why does David choose these words, in this instance, to request of his God? Some commentators see these words as David asking Yahweh to intervene as a champion warrior, smashing a battle club into the cheeks and jaws of his enemies and breaking their teeth, thus disarming them and freeing their prey. While others—and I agree with these—see David's cry in this instance more as asking for a sort of in-kind judgment on his enemies, he has been subjected to public disgrace by the enemies in league with Absalom, who have forced him to flee Jerusalem, as well as verbal abuse from those saying of him that his God has abandoned him and will not deliver him. By asking that Yahweh strike the enemies on the cheek, he's asking that they be subjected to humiliation and public disgrace. And by asking that the teeth of the wicked be broken, he's asking that their ability to continue to speak against him be removed. It would be impossible to speak with a mouthful of broken teeth. I have to believe that part of the reason for this request, rather than that his enemies be destroyed, is David's repeated request that we see later in 2 Samuel that his son Absalom not be physically harmed. If we read a little further in second Samuel seventeen, we see in verse twenty three that this is exactly what happened in the case of one of David's enemies to Ahithophel. In second Samuel seventeen twenty three we read When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, he went home to his own city, he set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So Ahithophel was publicly disgraced. He was humiliated by Absalom taking the advice of Hushai over his and permanently silenced from ever speaking against David again by virtue of his committing suicide. So David's prayer had been answered. This brings us to the final verse of the, chap- of the chapter. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, your blessing beyond your people. In opposition to the words of his foes in verse 2 that there is no salvation for God in him, we see in this verse David declares emphatically that there is indeed salvation in his covenant God. Being a Psalm 1 man who meditates on the Torah, being a king who is put in place as the Lord's anointed, according to Psalm 2, and having received the promises of Yahweh in 2 Samuel 7, David is confident there is no hint of fear here That even if his foes are as wise as Ahithophel and as handsome and crafty as Absalom and those with him, salvation belongs to Yahweh and he will grant it to him. Even more than this, it's as if David zooms out to focus on the big picture in this verse. In the last phrase, he moves from the focus of I, my, and me that we have seen in the first seven verses. To your blessing, your people, which reaches far beyond his personal salvation. It belongs to that of the whole nation of Israel, and ultimately to we who are part of the present day Israel of God. The things things that have given him confidence in his own personal situation give him confidence in the salvation and blessing for the nation. True salvation. And true blessing come only from Yahweh. The mention of blessing in this verse should take us back to our study of Psalm 1 and 2, where we learn that those who meditate on the Word of God and those who take refuge in the Son are those who are truly blessed. If we remember back to the promise of of God to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, what was the reason he was going to bless Abram and his posterity? It was that he and his descendants would be a blessing to the nations and all the families of the earth. How is it with us as we enjoy the blessings of Yahweh in our lives? Are we in turn being a blessing to those in the world around us, to the families around us? Are we being a blessing to those around us whom we have contact with by sharing the good news of the gospel of the kingdom with them? By doing good works in the name of our Lord? May the Holy Spirit empower us to do so during our remaining time on earth. In conclusion, we have seen in today's psalm that King David, even though a man according to God's own heart and anointed as king and given great promises as was, as are we, finite and capable of succumbing to fear. But if in facing our foes we do not focus on our foes in fear, but rather in face Faith through prayer, focus on our God and on who we are in Christ, we can have hope of the deliverance and blessing of that Lord. David prayed, and his God answered, It can be the same for us. Lord Jesus, while he here on this earth, even though sinless and suffering no consequences of sin, still suffered at the hands of wicked men and faced many rising up against him. How did he respond? He walked a path of faithful prayer, as we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, where we read prayers. Let's see, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of irreverence and because of what he suffered and how he responded. He has become our perfect high priest as we see in the next three verses in Hebrews chapter 5, 8 through 10. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we see in Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 what that means for us. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a glorious promise. What a glorious Lord we serve. So when you have an ear day or season in your lives, may we follow the example of David and our Lord Jesus Christ and put away fear and by prayer and faith to our great high priest press on in our Christian walk, trusting that as we pray, our God will answer. And boys and girls, please look up here for a moment. I have something for you to hear as well this morning. When you have a day like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, and it seems like your friends or maybe your own brothers and sisters don't like you or won't listen to you or won't play with you, maybe they make fun of you or tease you, or when you're trying to get your parents' attention and they're You can't because they're too busy or they're too tired, and you may feel all alone. Remember that if you put your trust in Jesus, he always hears, he always listens, he always cares for and loves you. Pray for him, and he will help you through your hard day. To the unbeliever here this morning who's not in Christ, it may seem that no one is against you. You're doing very well, thank you very much. You have nothing to fear. But know that God's word says there are unseen forces that are against you. The world, the flesh, the devil, and his forces of evil, they're trying to keep you in bondage to your sin and away from Jesus Christ. And infinitely worse, if you remain in your sin and outside of Christ, at the judgment day, the sovereign God of the universe will be against you and you will be sentenced to eternal torment and separation from God in hell. That's something that should strike fear to the very core of your being. I implore you to repent of and turn from your sin today. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from the judgment to come. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, even though it may seem like everyone around you is against you, And as with the unbeliever, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and his forces of darkness are truly against you as well, do not walk in fear. Take courage in knowing that the sovereign, righteous God of the universe is for you. So walk in faith through prayer to your great intercessor, and remember who you are in him. Please turn with me to Colossians 2. As we close, Colossians 2, we'll read verses 6 through 15. Who is the head of all rule and authority? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them over them in him. Amen. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, we ask that you would indeed help us as we face foes in our lives, not to focus on them, and how seemingly helpless we might be before them, but instead in faith, through prayer, to look to you, O great God, through our great intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ,
0: for victory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.